You're listening to What Will It Take? Conversations with legends and movement makers with journalist and author Marianne Schnall. I've had the great pleasure of interviewing Jane Fonda many times over the course of my career. The first time I interviewed her was back in 1992 at the March for Women's Lives. Even back then, I was struck by how she was intentionally using her voice and her influence to raise awareness about a very important cause, something that she has been doing throughout her career and her life. The other thing that always strikes me about Jane Fonda is how honest and candid she is about her life and her life journey. Whereas some celebrities feel like they have to put out their best public image and only share the most positive aspects of their lives and stories, she has been more than willing to offer the truth of her experience and her journey, whether it's been about her eating disorders, to her failed marriages, to the struggles she's had around aging, to just a myriad of different experiences that we've all had as humans and as women. And she offers that in the spirit of us all learning together and connecting and being able to share some of her life lessons and wisdom. In this latest interview that I had conducted at AOL Build, we wound up talking about a wide range of conversations, all on topics that were sort of near and dear to her heart, whether it was the need for more women's voices and diversity in Hollywood and the media, to what drives her activist work to the importance of being whole and being authentic, to how she is still trying to grow as a person. She talked about all of these different issues with such heart and honesty and with real sense that she wanted to offer whatever lesson she could in order to both create awareness and to create change. I think that there are many valuable lessons that we can all learn from Jane Fonda as we seek to create change, to be leaders and movement makers. One of the most important ones, I think, is the idea that if you have a position of influence, if you have wealth, if you have celebrity, you have a responsibility, and it actually brings meaning to having that celebrity to use your influence in order to raise awareness about important causes, use whatever money or wealth that you've come into to support you know, issues that are important to you. For her, that is not only where she derives meaning for her celebrity, but honestly, she talks very openly in this conversation about the fact that that is where she feels sort of most alive. And then if she isn't doing activist work and participating in that way, she almost feels like she sort of loses herself, how important that is to her life. The other thing that I think is important that she talks about in this interview is what we can learn from our wounds and scars. She talks frequently in the conversation about that rather than feeling like we have to fear having these these experiences that are setbacks or where we are feeling like we have been wounded in some way, that these are all opportunities to learn and grow, which I think is a very important thing for us to keep in mind as we are all going to inevitably have those experiences. Probably one of the most moving parts of the interview for me is where she talks about an epiphany that she had at a Buddhist silent retreat 
that was related to the importance of us all connecting to each other's humanity. And she also says something that really stuck with me about the importance of having empathy for the other, but not just having empathy, turning empathy into a force, into compassion, so that as we are going about in the world, not only connecting with others, but also trying to to help and and love one another. So all of these, I feel like, are such important things for us all to keep in mind that we can learn from each other and also instill in our own lives. And I have to say, Jane and I have spoken many, many times over the years about all of her, a variety of projects, her books and theater and her film roles and activism. I mean, it's, it's a testament to all she has done. And she is, I have such admiration for Jane and her work. And she's always one of my favorite people to interview. So welcome. What is your process for choosing roles these days? Writing. I mean, process, you know, it's so rare to find a multi-dimensional part for women, older women in particular. And, um, and when they come along, you grab them. I mean, I was very lucky because Aaron Sorkin offered me the role of Leona Lansing in the newsroom. And, uh, you know, that was just an, an incredible experience because she was so beautifully written. Um, so my process is looking for the good, you follow the good writing. What is your perspective on being a woman in Hollywood these days? Are conditions getting better? At a glacierly pace. <laughs> it's, it's tough. You know, it's a business. Mm-hmm. And the studios are run by men. And the major movie studios, you know, movies these days, it, it's not like in the 70s, you know, where I produce movies like Coming Home and On Golden Pond and China Syndrome and those kind of movies. Thank you. Um, you know, character-driven movies. Studios were making movies like that, although I had to go to England to get money for 9 to 5. Um, but nowadays, movies are so expensive to make, the studio heads who are all white men don't want to take risks, so they hire people to do these huge multi-million, do- hundreds of millions of dollar budget tentpole films, people who look like them, because that's kind of the safe thing to do. And so we just we need to get more women running studios, and we need to get more women in decision-making positions mm-hmm. before there are more women directors and really more roles with women in the lead. And why is that important? Because we just see things differently. We have a different perspective on what's important and not important and a different sensibility, and we are 51% of the population of the world, so if you leave our sensibilities and our narrative approach out, that's ignoring the majority of human beings in the world. And when you're left out of the narrative, it, you're not conscious of it, but it affects your sense of self. You know, it's like assuming that God is a white male. We don't question it. I mean, I do, but most people don't. Um, but the fact is that if God is a white male, then us then people of color and females are going to feel on some level a little bit less important, like we count a little bit less. And media, I mean, God, media is what creates consciousness, right? Media is this heart of of it's it's sitting around the campfire. It's it's the modern version of the oral tradition. It's, It's so much what makes us who we are. It's so important, and that's why it's so important that women 
have a, have a real foothold in it. You know that in, in, if you look at all of media, magazines and radio, television, movies, all, all together, only 3% of decision-making roles are held by women. We, do, we don't really think about it because when you look at, like, television, you see women on television, but they don't make the decisions about what stories get told and how they get told. And I hear this all the time. You know, I'll be interviewed by a woman, and she'll say, my boss asked me to ask you, or don't get into this, or, you know, they're told what to do. And, and so we're just not getting the whole story, and that's really important. And it's why Gloria Steinem and Robin Morgan and I founded the Women's Media Center that you write for. Yeah. yeah, to try to amplify women's voices in the media. Yeah, Women's Media Center is an amazing organization. I'm honored to write for it, and I definitely encourage everyone to, to check it out. And actually, one of the recent articles that I wrote um, for Women's Media Center was on um, the No Ceilings Report, which um, the Clinton Foundation, the Gates Foundation, recently put out, which sort of took stock of the progress uh, worldwide for um, women and girls 20 years since Beijing. Mm-hmm. And it you know, definitely showed there's been progress in some areas, but there's a lot of gaps, a lot of work still to be done. You know, some days I'm feeling very optimistic about, you know, the opportunities and progress that women are making. And other days you can feel very discouraged. How do you feel about sort of this moment that we're in uh, for, for women right now? Are you feeling hopeful? I'm always optimistic. Yeah. I mean, what's the alternative? I don't know. Uh, yes, I'm cautiously optimistic. I, I, I know so many young people, boys as well as girls, who are progressive and activist and care and, and work hard and organize to really make a difference. So, yes, I'm, I, I'm optimistic, but we have a long way to go mm-hmm. before there is true gender equity in, in the world. And um, I think it's the central problem. I think until there's gender equity, I don't think we can really solve any of the world's problems including environmental problems. Well, one of the other things, I mean, I know that you recently spoke, uh, our mutual friend Michael Kimmel had this international conference on masculinities. And we do talk a lot about how constrictive gender stereotypes negatively impact women and girls, but do you think we don't talk enough about how those same gender stereotypes also have a negative influence on men and boys? Well, I... I lived for 20 years in Georgia, and, and I, I started several nonprofits that work with adolescents, boys and girls, and that led me to really study um, youth development for boys and girls. And one of the things that touched me the most profoundly was the extent to which masculinity, the way it's viewed in our culture, damages the male species the males of our species, the whole be a man, be a real man, you know, prove your manhood, don't be a sissy, don't be a mama's boy, all of those kinds of things that, that get communicated sometimes by parents, by teachers, by coaches, by the media, by our culture in general, do tremendous damage to boys and to men because it, it robs them of their humanity. You know, we're all born, boys and girls are born relational. If you look at a, a film of a newborn baby boy searching for its mother's eyes, searching to make contact, coming alive when it finds the mother's eyes, becoming withdrawn when there are no loving eyes 
to, to reflect itself back from. And, and so the idea that boys are different than girls, that boys, boys aren't as emotional and relational as girls, is simply not true. And yet as they get older, that part of themselves gets shut down. And it, it just breaks my heart. I've, I've seen it, how that plays itself out in the lives of boys and men in so many different arenas in this country and even more um, obviously. It's so great to go to conflict zones or to the global south because everything is so stark, so much more evident that you can learn a lot by, by doing that. Things are very subtle in this country. Women don't even realize that we don't have gender equity sometimes. So I, 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 I do try to understand and work on and, and get involved with organizations that are address, addressing these issues. The Center for Men and Masculinities at Stony Brook University is a key one. Um, this, how do we make our masculinity le- less toxic? Because we're not, women can't do it on our own. You know, we... we we need men, and men need us. And what we're talking about, ultimately, through feminism and through an effort to um, reduce the toxicity and masculinity, is going to benefit all of us. We all become winners. Well, I know you speak out for so many causes and so many different really. organizations. Well, no, quite a quite a, a few. I mean, one of the things that I, I was struck by, I was reading one of your recent blog posts, and you were talking about how much you love acting, but that you felt that the problems of the world would I th- engulf you, was the word that you used, if you hadn't spoken out in a long time. And you've, you've been an activist most of your adult life, and, you know, I, a lot of times you hear that, you know, being an activist is something you do for others, or it's sort of like this draining thing. I'm curious, you know, what is it that drives you, and what are the benefits and rewards of getting involved and making a difference? Well, you know, speaking just personally, I've I've had, for most of my adult life, I've had celebrity. And celebrity can be really alienating. It separates you from people. It can make you feel lonely. It can make you feel that the people around you are not, they're, 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 imposing their own view of who you are and they're not really seeing you for who you are. And so you feel very lonely. And for me, why have celebrity then unless it's going to be used for something good? And so, you know, there I am in Hollywood working away and I've got a job and I'm doing red carpets and all that stuff. And people say, oh, you look so good for your age. All this stuff. You know, and people loan you jewelry and clothes, and it's all very nice, and it's fun. But at the end of the day, it's like, why? I mean, you can, you can feel really odd as you go to bed at night at the end of a day of that stuff. And you think, well, what's the point of my life? And then when I leave that to go and be with other activists... I feel reborn. I, I really, you know, those things when you're little, little hard, crusty things that you drop in water and they kind of bloom into under, underwater, colorful cities almost. I feel like that. I feel like I've been dropped in water and I'm kind of blooming into color for the first time when I'm with my activist friends. So it starts in a very selfish way. I'm with people who they could care less if I look good for my age or. 
Donna Versace has given me a dress or whatever. It's all about what are we going to do about the women in Afghanistan that are blah, blah, you know. It's about, you know, I was raised to feel that service, activism, is the rent you pay for life. And I grew up on my father's films, you know, like Grapes of Wrath and Oxbow Incident and Young Abe Lincoln and this. And so it's where my lifeblood is, and it's how I can use celebrity in a way that makes me feel better about it all. You know, Gloria Steinem, my dear friend, has the words. She's the wordsmith of the movement, right? She has this depth of experience and knowledge and this brilliance with words. Um, I'm a movie star, so if I can show up and stand, as I did the other day, there was her and me and a woman from Kenya and a woman from Egypt and a woman from Afghanistan and conflict zones, that brings something, you know, you feel, well, I, I know why I'm here. I'm here to help have the backs of these women who are fighting for their lives and the lives of the women in their countries. So that gives meaning to my life to know that I can be of use. And so when too long a time goes by and that doesn't happen to me, I feel withered, like I'm going to disappear. And I might as well. What's the point? Well, one of the things, I mean, even just for, you know, the average person, I feel like a lot of times people, they want to contribute to positive change in the world, but it just seems the problems are too complicated. They feel like they don't have time. It just feels like nothing they could do could possibly make a difference. What advice would you have for anyone who would like to see the world change in a positive way but just doesn't know how they can play a part? Well, you know, everybody's got their own... What's in your gut? You know, you're going to be at the most effective activists are people that are, are working in an area that resonates from their gut, from their core self, you know, that really matters to them. So you have to figure out what that is. And it can be, it can be children. It can be your community. It can be green spaces in New York. It can be um, working with teens. It can be peace. It can be the environment. I mean, there's, there's, there's so much that can be done. And some people can, can ha- you know, have a big wide swath of influence, and for some people it can be just a few children. Sometimes all I can do is, when I walk down the street, and this matters especially in New York, is look people in the eye, and especially homeless people, prostitutes. I mean, you don't see streetwalkers so much here, but I've been in cities where you run into streetwalkers looking them in the eye and saying hello, I know, makes a difference to that woman's life. Someone has seen her as a human being. So acknowledging another person's humanity by something as simple as looking in their eye is important. Looking at every young person as your own child is important. I mean, you know, if everyone did that, it would be different. Trying to grow empathy within yourself is revolutionary. It doesn't have to be such some huge thing. It can be trying to be the best person you can and having empathy and taking it from there. Who or what inspires you? I have been so lucky, and it's really unusual for a movie star, because um, I was already a movie star when I became an activist, and when I became an activist... I hated so much the alienation that I felt because of my celebrity that I left it. And I was in the trenches 
with people whose name no, no one knew, but they were people who were so brave, who were making so, such sacrifices in little ways on the ground where they lived. And those people are the people that inspire me. And they include someone that you may know who became famous, Lois Gibbs. I knew this woman. She was a housewife in Love Canal, New York, near Buffalo. What they discovered in the community of Love Canal was Occidental Petroleum had been dumping toxic wastes underground, and their community was built on a toxic waste, and people were dying in large numbers from cancer. And she was a, Lois was a very, very shy housewife who decided that she was going to do something about it. And I was there when she had her first press conference. And watching the courage of this woman, who then grew into a major activist and has started a national organization dealing with hazardous waste sites, that's the kind of person who, who inspires me. Soldiers have inspired me. You know, it's... It's average people who do extraordinary things because they've been motivated by something very deep within themselves. If you're lucky enough to meet people like that, that you can always think back on them and become inspired. Yeah. Now, I feel like you wear so many different hats, and I had you know, the pleasure of also seeing you, your amazing performance in 33 Variations. You've done theater and film, and you've written, I think, five books. And Seven. Seven. <laughs> If wow. The workout books. <laughs> yeah. Well, and the exercise videos. I mean, you've, you've obviously um, just in so many different mediums. Is there one that you feel most at home with or you're most passionate about? Or they, do they all sort of feed different they parts all of feed, you? All yeah. different parts, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. They're just, you know, I mean, we all have many, yep. many different parts to ourselves, in fact, mm-hmm. if we really think about it. Mm-hmm. Um, mine have just been more amplified. <laughs> you know, I've... I had body issues all my life, and I started the workout never expecting that it would become what it did. And so now everybody knows about it. But I basically was like just a lot of you. I was just trying to look good. (laughs) You know, and then I became famous for it (laughs) and discovered it was much more than just looking good, that it actually empowers you if you become strong. You know, I just, I've been lucky that the various things I've done have worked. Some of them haven't. I won't talk about those. <laughs> I won't ask you. I don't know what they are. Catherine Hepburn once said to me, I've learned more from my failures. And it's true. You, you learn. Somebody else said, God doesn't look for awards and accolades. God looks for wounds and scars. Because that's when the soul comes into play. And, you know, I mean, it's really what, what we all, I think, try to do in our lives is amplify our souls, find out, try to be as authentic as we can be and as whole as we can be, regardless of what other people think or what society says we should be. How can we, I mean, we all want to die being, having lived, having been authentic, whole people, I think. That's the goal. Yeah, I often quote from an interview where you said that, you know, you don't have to be perfect, you have to be whole, you have to be complete. What does that mean to you, the concept of being whole? It, it means being authentic. It means um, not being alienated from any part of you. I, I can, I'll tell you, maybe I can illustrate it this way. The, the, I remember the moment that I realized that I was starting to be whole. I was 62. <laughs> I'm the quintessential late bloomer. I had been separated from my favorite ex-husband for three days. <laughs> 
His name is Ted Turner. And I was standing alone in the home of my firstborn, who was not there. And although I was very sad, I realized I'm not scared. This is the first time in my life that I'm without a man, and I'm not scared. And I realized I was becoming whole. And I thought, this is what God wants of us. I said it out loud. I stunned myself. So that was, for me, I mean, it's different for everyone, but that, for me, becoming whole, I didn't need a man to validate who I was. It took me 62 years. <laughs> Never give up. <laughs> that's kind of my it's like if I have anything to teach it's the truth that never it's never too late I'm 77 and this morning I spent three hours in therapy and part of my life changed and I'm 77 it's never too late you can always get better and go deeper and grow wider and matter more as an individual person never give up one of the things I, I really admire most about Jane is also that you do share so much of your life lessons, your vulnerabilities, your challenges. I think that's really important, especially from celebrities. And that did struck me. I remember interviewing you about your memoir when you said that, that it had taken you till you're 60 to come into your true voice and power. And I remember for me thinking, well, maybe for me it was maybe like 30. And then, and then thinking, thank God we came into it finally, but then thinking, does it really have to take that long? What advice would you have, I mean, obviously there's young people in the audience, to young people, maybe particularly women, um, to help them avoid some of these you know, struggles that you faced in your own life, finding that? Just never, never give up. I was in my 20s, and I really I thought that I wouldn't make it to 30. I thought I would die alone and probably alcoholic. <laughs> And uh, I don't know why I thought that. <laughs> but very, very, very low self-esteem. And, you know, most of us are wounded. I, I would wager that every single person here carries wounds. And it's through those wounds that we can blossom. And don't give up that effort to learn from your wounds and your scars Understand that the events and the people that gave you those wounds, it had nothing to do with you. It had nothing to do with you. It was their problem. And probably they had wounds. You know, it's like all we can do is try to take it from here and learn and grow from it. We can't undo the wounds. They're there, and we just let them teach us and let the wounds make us better people. And because also without the wounds, we won't have empathy. It's one of the reasons that I'm in therapy again, is to try to understand the relationship between the actor and his or her wounds and the characters that we have to play. Because we have to somehow find the wounds in the character that are parallel to our own. And, it's, and we have to have empathy. We can't, it's very difficult to act a character that you don't have empathy for. Even someone who's hideous, who's done terrible things, if you can understand the wounds that brought them there, you know, you, you can have empathy for them. But you can't have empathy for them until you have it for yourself. And then empathy, which means you can put yourself in someone else's shoes, the step beyond empathy is compassion. That puts empathy into action. And that's the ultimate thing. 
is to have compassion. So you take your empathy for other human beings and turn it into active compassion so that you want to join with them and and do something about it, whatever it is. Very wise words. Now, I know that you obviously have a very busy life, but that taking care of your mind and your body through exercise and practices like meditation is something that's very important to you. And this is something I even need help with. Amongst your busy life, how do you manage to, you know, prioritize and, you know, manage that type of self-care among all your responsibilities? Lily Tomlin and I talk, talk about this a lot. I'm, I schedule things. It's like I have discovered that friends are really, really, really important to me. They didn't used to be, but they've become really important. So I schedule time with friends. I schedule time to meditate, and I schedule time to do some kind of working out, even if that just means walking. I mean, it's not just walking. Walking is really great. Discipline is liberation. That's Martha Graham. When you're disciplined, then you can make sure that the things that are important to your psyche, to your life, to your well-being, that those things actually happen liberates you, and, and is, it's, a, it's wonderful. But it took me a long time to understand that. And do you have either you know, a motto, a life philosophy, some type of spiritual belief system? Do you have something that helps guide you that you sort of try to live your life by? Being interested is more important than being interesting. I think that's on that maker's five-minute maker thing. Yeah, just staying interested. Don't get cynical. Cynical is the death. Of us all, we can't get cynical. And if you try to learn something every day and you stay interested, you're going to be an interesting person and you're going to continue to grow. And so I just, I don't have to work too hard to stay interested. I'm fascinated. I'm fascinated with wilderness and plants and rocks and mountains and other people and the humanity of people. I remember I did an uh, rohatsu. I don't know if any of you know. That's just the first eight days of December celebrates the enlightenment of the Buddha. And I wanted to learn how to meditate as I was approaching 70, and so is, is my want. I did a most difficult thing. I, I went on an eight-day during Rohatsu silent Buddhist meditation retreat. It was a formal retreat where you don't speak and you don't make eye contact and all that. And I, I remember, you, you know, you walk from place to place to the temple where you meditate and you don't look at anybody, but I would cheat, you know, and I'd go like, oh, my God, what a loser. You know? <laughs> Oh, my Lord, look at her. Oh. Okay. End of eight days, we finally could speak. And it was 60 people, and we all sat at the foot of Roshi Joan, Halifax, and spoke about, you know, we each had a few minutes to say what the eight days had meant to us. And what I realized during that time of speaking, you know, those people that I thought, oh, what a loser, and... Mm, we're just, we're all incredibly wonderful human beings that are trying to do the best we can and trying to be as whole as we can be and trying to learn from our wounds and our scars. And I just, I, the love that I felt for everybody in, in that room at that time, it was such a huge lesson to me. You know, how important it is to really connect with people and listen to them and understand our common goals and suffering and joy and, and it was that, that's the kind of thing that keeps me going and inspires me and you can so easily forget because you know we get tired and we busy and, but our common humanity we have to keep reminding ourselves of that and not being afraid of other you know the people who aren't like us 
it's so easy to get scared. You've accomplished, you know, so much, accomplished and experienced so much in your life and career. Is there anything still left on your bucket list that, you know, whether work-wise or any... Oh, there's lots of things that I wish, but I, you know, I have a huge desire. I've had it for decades to trek to Tibet, which my Zen teacher, my Buddhist teacher has done many times, but my body won't do it anymore. (laughs) You know, that's another thing is getting old. You know, you have to, it's like, well, okay, can't... (laughs) I can't do that anymore. And then you have to decide, are you going to let that define you? The fact that I can't run anymore or ski or do a whole lot of things. I got a fake knee, a fake hip. Half my back is metal. I mean, you don't even know. It's great at the airports. And you can, you know, I just feel I'm lucky to be alive at a time when stuff can be replaced and, and, and not let it define you. So there's a lot of things that I wanted to do that were on my bucket list that I can't do anymore. I guess... It all has to do with internal things, just trying to, you know, grow myself as a person, be a better mother to my children, be a better grandmother to my grandchildren, and try to learn from my grandkids. Thank you, everybody, for listening to another episode of What Will It Take and my conversation with Jane Fonda. I think one of the things that most surprises me about Jane, especially as she talks about connecting with each other's humanity, is how human she is. We all know her as this kind of global icon. She's an Oscar-winning actress and author. Everybody remembers her fitness tapes. She's somewhat untouchable. And yet, in truth, when you actually talk to her, she's so real. She's so relatable. She's so honest and personable and talking about her insecurities and vulnerabilities. And to me, that is something that having interviewed her possibly 10 times, so I can speak to the fact that this seems to be truly who she is in her heart, is just something that's very lovely and real about her. And even at the part in the interview where she she actually chokes up, she gets moved to tears. There's something very raw about her. And for someone who is an actress, I think it's wonderful to get a little sort of peek into who the real woman Jane Fonda actually is. And so that's where her activism comes from. It's not for just wanting to do good for some public relations image. She does it because she truly, truly cares at a very deep level. One last thing I wanted to to say about her is that it's pretty amazing to think that she's 82. And at 82, she is as active as ever. She's still speaking out through several organizations that she co-founded, which include Women's Media Center, the Georgia Campaign for Adolescent Power and Potential. She works with an anti-violence organization called V-Day, as well as starring with Lily Tomlin in the Netflix series Grace and Frankie. And she goes across the country speaking out on behalf of all different causes throughout the country. The other thing, as she talked about in the interview, which I think is so important for all of us to remember, because we all are going to get older, is that we can always be learning and growing. 
And the idea that, as she said, you know, it's never too late, that even, you know, at 62, she wound up coming into this sort of new understanding of herself. So that as we get older, that it's not a time to fear that we're losing our vitality, but instead that it can be a time where we can gain deeper perspective and come more fully into ourselves and that we can always be learning and growing. So I think that is a wonderful bit of wisdom that we can remember as we all go along our life's journey. Thank you for listening to What Will It Take? Conversations with legends and movement makers with journalist and author Marianne Schnall. For more information about this podcast or our host, check out whatwillittake.com or follow us on Twitter at Marianne Schnall.